Adiós, acudí, mi angustia escuchó, de aguas profundas me rescata. Llegó mi clamor a su palacio de cal. Hey church, our passage today for episode three of Making Our House a Home comes from the book of Acts in chapter four. So if you have your Bible at home, you can turn to Acts chapter four, starting in verse 32, or you can read on the screen below. Here's what God's word says to us. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. You know, a home is a place that you grow. It is a place of growth. In fact, many of you growing up had a measuring stick or maybe it was on the threshold of your door or was on a wall where your parents would measure how much you grew from the time you were a small child to you were in elementary school, to you were a teenager to see and track and celebrate your growth. This is common. You want to celebrate the growth of those within a home, the ways that you've grown in education, the way that you've grown in stature, the ways that you have grown in maturity. A home is a place where you celebrate growth. And at Crossbridge, our desire is to create a home and to establish a home where we celebrate growth and where we enable you to grow in your faith. We want you to grow. We want you to be able to track that. We want you to be able to celebrate that, both in your life and the life of others. In fact, we want to see every aspect of your life connected to the way of Jesus. Our mission statement here at Crossbridge is to help connect life to the way of Jesus. We want to connect your life, every aspect of your life, to the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is a way of flourishing. For you to flourish in your life, you have to be connected to the way of Jesus. And today, we're going to be looking here in Acts chapter 4 to see what does an environment for flourishing look like? 
what is required of a community for it to be a community where everybody flourishes. Here in Acts chapter 4, we begin at the very beginnings of the church, the Christian movement. See, what's taken place right before this is Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he was laid in the tomb, he resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and to many others, and then he ascended and he gave his disciples, now apostles, a command, a charge, a mission, which was to go and to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the grace of God that is made available to all through faith. And to make disciples of all nations. And so the church begins here in Jerusalem. And it begins with a sermon. Peter's first sermon, we believe, here on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, he shares the message of Jesus and the grace that is made available through faith. And at the end of the sermon, 3,000 people roughly come to faith. I mean, the church begins with a bang. 3,000 people. One day. One sermon. Unbelievable. And from here, with this community of 3,000 or more Christians, they begin to assemble into small house churches. They meet in homes. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to each other and to prayer. They go to the temple still to worship, but also to share the message of Jesus with people at the temple. They're committed to spending time together and having meals together, and they begin to share their resources as well so that nobody is lacking, that everybody's needs are met. We begin to see flourishing take place in the community, and it is such profound flourishing that it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth to all of the Roman Empire and beyond. In fact, after just three centuries, 300 years, Christianity, this small little movement that started with a bang with 3,000 people here in Jerusalem, becomes the prominent religion in the Roman Empire. It's established as the religion of the Roman Empire because you can't deny it. The way that the gospel has gone forth and the church has been established and grown is a place of flourishing unbelievable what takes place. And when you see that, you have to ask the question, like, how did that happen? Obviously, God is in control of his church, and God is orchestrating these things, but what were some of the elements that made this possible? Well, first off, the message. That's the most important. See, renewal and flourishing comes through the power of Christ and his message. The message of grace, the message that you can be connected to your creator through faith in Christ and his death that paid for your sin, and his resurrection that gives you life, life eternal. That message is both powerful and transformative and attractive. In the Roman Empire, they had many different religions, and they believed in many different gods, and so to hear a message, you could be connected to the God, the Logos, was very peculiar and very interesting. Because most people, religion was something you were socially conditioned into believing depending on the region you're from or the family that you're from. It really didn't have any effect on your life. But this message transformed people's lives. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect was that these Christians that were a part of this flourishing community, they had some bold actions that they took and some really strange convictions to the society around them. There were many different things that were strange to people by the way that they acted and what they believed. 
And a lot of that had to do with the, what they believed about life. You see, from the beginning, the church was against abortion. However, that was very rare in the Roman society. What was more common was that unwanted babies, when they were born, they would be discarded in trash piles and garbage piles to either die or for slave traders to pick them up and raise them and then sell them as slaves. And what was so strange to the Roman Empire was that the Christian community began to rescue these babies and raise them, care for them, make them a part of their home. That was so perplexing. And also it was offensive too because people felt judged by their convictions and by the way that they operated. Another thing that was strange to them was the view of sex, that Christians waited to have sex until marriage, which was totally bizarre in the Roman world where a man that was married was perfectly, was perfectly acceptable for him to go have sex with prostitutes, with slaves, and even with children. And so to see this type of community that had these strange convictions and these bold actions was offensive to some, but it was very attractive to others. And all of these things and many more led to an environment where people really flourish. And that was the thing that we see here in Acts chapter 4, that people saw the love that the community had for each other, that no one within this community had any needs, that people sacrificed in unbelievable ways for people of different races, of different socioeconomic classes, from different parts of the country, different parts of the world. And this environment where everybody can flourish was so perplexing that it made people interested in the message. It made people want to know more about these Christians and their church. And so we see here in verse 32 what it looked like inside this community from the very beginning. Verse 32 says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said to any and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So we read here that they were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. And they had everything in common. I love what it says in the very middle. It says no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. See, the wording here is really important. Everyone had everything in common. They were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own. Now, it's important to understand what this means. It doesn't mean that the individuals that were a part of this community, that were a part of the church, didn't believe that things were under their authority. Certainly they understood this, that their job was under their authority, that their family and their resources and their time and their talents, their opportunities were things that were under their authority. But what they understood was that everything given to them, from time to talent to treasure to influence to their job, to where they lived, to their home, everything, was not theirs alone. It may belong to them, but it was entrusted 
to them. This is the principle of stewardship, that they understood that everything given to them was entrusted to them for the sake of others. See, this is what they had in common. They had different jobs. They were of different socioeconomic classes. They had different food that they enjoyed. They had different friends. They had different levels of housing, probably different levels of luxury too. They had very many different things in the community. It was very diverse. But what they had in common was that nobody believed that what had been given to them was their own, that it was all grace, that it was a gift. Each and everything they had was grace. You see, that phrase, everything in common, that spoke to the love that they had for one another, not the law that they lived by. It spoke to the love that they had for each other, not the law that they lived by. They loved each other so much that they recognized that everything given to them wasn't just for them, but it was also for others, for the community, so that nobody was lacking and that nobody had needs. We read here that some in the community that owned land, they were willing to sell their property or their houses so that the proceeds might help out those that had needs in the community. I mean, this is unbelievable love. And the result of this, in verse 34, was that there was not a needy person among them. I mean, this is an environment of flourishing. Because nobody has needs. Everybody is flourishing. So what are the elements that make up this environment where everybody can flourish and nobody has needs and people are really living in this profound way with one another? Well, the first aspect is what I've already mentioned, and that is that there was love. Love for those around you. There was profound love in this church community. Diedrich Bonhoeffer has a great quote about community and love. He says this, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor, a Nazi dissident, a scholar, and he said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. I love that quote. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy it, but the person who just loves those around them, they'll create community. Now, what does this mean? See, sometimes you can be so interested in being a part of community, so desiring community, that you neglect to just love the people around you. Instead, you form this dream of what community looks like. You form this dream of, of how it will operate for your good. And so you begin to look for ways to create and fashion a community for yourself that's according to your desires. And so you may be a part of a church, you're a part of Crossbridge, but you look to create a community that is according to your dreams, your desires, which means you really only spend time with and talk with people that think like you and act like you and are in, kind of maybe living your same lifestyle, people that make you feel comfortable, people that don't kind of rock the boat for you, just the, the people that you're attracted to. Now, you may be a part of a diverse community and you may be around different people, but you 
don't really engage them. They're just in the room or a part of the event or the larger community that you are a part of. And the reason that this can destroy a community when you love your dream of community instead of just loving those around you is that when something happens, which inevitably will, and it always does because we're broken people, when inside of that community that, you're, that you dream about, that you're trying to fashion and forge for yourself, when someone upsets you or says something that you're uncomfortable with or there's conflict or someone angers you or disappoints you, the natural tendency is then to say, okay, I'm going to leave. This community no longer is fitting within my dream and I don't want to deal with these difficulties and this conflict, so I'm going to leave and I'm going to take some people with me. I'm going to go find another place, another church, another community that fits what I'm looking for, that fits within the mold that I'm desiring and dreaming of. See, this is why church split. I mean, church split for other reasons too, but this is one of the main reasons, because you have two different communities that aren't willing just to love those around them. They both have different dreams of what the community should look like, and when it doesn't fit perfectly within their utopian view or according to their desires, then they just leave and Go find something different. That will destroy a community. But loving those around you is what actually creates an environment for flourishing, where you can flourish and where those around you can flourish too. So what does that mean? How do you love those around you? Now, what it doesn't mean is that you have to be best friends with everybody. I mean, that's not realistic. You're not best friends with everybody. You don't have to call every single person in the church. You don't have to invite every single person over to your house. You can have a smaller, tight-knit community that you align more with, that holds you accountable, that speak truth into your life, that challenge you, that you connect with. That's normal. But see, loving those around you means seeing and knowing the people that are a part of your community. It means seeing their needs. It means knowing their needs. It means loving them enough to be concerned with those things. That's what it means to love those around you. And so what that looks like at church, right, as we're seeking to make our house a home, at each of our campuses, as a Crossbridge church, we want to see this happen. It means that when needs are made known to you within your community, you're concerned with them. You don't think to yourself, well, that's somebody else's. Someone else's to deal with. I don't really know them very well. I don't really like them. That's their fault. No, when, when needs are made known in your community, they're concerning to you because you love those around you. You want to know people in your community and what they're going through. You want to celebrate with them and you want to mourn with them. You want to laugh with them and you want to listen to them. See, it's a community where you seek to not judge others. It's a community where you don't gossip. Loving those around you means listening to people that think differently than you, being patient and gracious with people. It means celebrating when people succeed, even if their success makes you envious because you want the best for others. Loving people around you means that you pray for them. It means that when you hear about prayer requests, whether it's on a Sunday or it's in a small group or it's on your WhatsApp chat. 
When you hear people requesting for prayer, that you actually pray. You don't just say, I'll pray for you or do the hand emoji. You actually pray because you love those around you. And it means when there's conflict between you and someone else, maybe if they don't even know that there's conflict, that you go to them. You seek to understand. You desire reconciliation. So I think one way of, of thinking about it too is that when you're alive and in person for communion or even taking communion online, that you either look around the room or you think about the people that are a part of your church and you say, these are my people. I love them. I don't know all of them, but I want what's best for them. I want to see their needs. I want to be a part of seeing that no one is lacking. I want, I want everyone to flourish loving those around you. And this type of love creates an environment where everybody can flourish, including you. And it, this love establishes a culture of stewardship. That's the second aspect of an environment that is flourishing. The first is that you love those around you. And the second is that there's a culture of stewardship. What is stewardship? Stewardship, as I've already said, is understanding that everything that you have been given, every blessing, every gift, every opportunity, all your time, all your talents, all your treasure, everything has been given to you. It's been entrusted to you. James chapter 1 verse 7 says it like this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. When you hear that, you may say, oh, yes, of course, but it rubs against us, right? Because you think, well, no, some of the gifts and some of the rewards are because of me. It's because of my hard work. It's because of my discipline. It's because I took advantage of that opportunity. It's Now, Work is actually a sacred thing. Discipline is important. We're called to be excellent with every opportunity that we've been given. We're called to steward our time and our talent and our treasure and our opportunities, our career, all these things. We are involved. But everything we've been given has in fact been given. You see, all of us have different backgrounds. We have different levels of education, different opportunities with different families different connections from different countries. So many differences. So many things that you're not in control of. But they were given to you. Every good gift is a result of previous good gifts that God has given to you. And when you understand that everything has been given to you, even the time that you have to breathe right now your life, you understand that it's been given to you so that you can care for it and oversee it and steward it well, not just for your sake, but for the sake of others. You see, stewardship in an environment where there's flourishing, stewardship understands that it is humanitarianism without humanism. You're like, what does that mean? Stewardship is humanitarianism 
without humanism. See, many people in our society desire to be humanitarians, right? They want to do good for others. They want to meet the needs of others. They want, they're concerned with the, the needs and the struggles and the pain of other people. But so many people are motivated to do good because of their belief in humanism. Their humanitarian ways are a result of their belief in humanism. Now, what is humanitarianism? That is the promotion or the concern for the welfare of others. It is thinking about the needs of others. It is thinking about how you can use what has been given to you to help other people out. But humanism is the belief that humanity is of prime importance, not God. There is no divine, there is no supernatural, that nothing is more important or more valuable than humanity. Nothing. Francis Schaeffer, the pastor and philosopher, he said that humanism means man is the measure of all things. That man is the measure of all things. That there is nothing greater than humanity. There is nothing greater than humanity, that you have individual agency, that human beings are made good, and so therefore actually every good in the world is a result of the goodness of human beings. And so human beings are supposed to do good, to grow in goodness, and to enjoy the realized good of their world that's just a result of other human beings. There's no divine, there's no gifts from above. Every gift that you have, every reward that you enjoy, every blessing that is yours is a result of what you have produced. It is your hard work. It is your attention to detail. And you are to use that to help others when you see fit. See, humanism looks at humanitarianism as it's something you do when it seems good to you. It's up to you. So if you feel like this is a good decision that will help somebody else out and also help you out, it's good for them, it's good for you, then you're going to engage in it. That's what humanism believes and how it sees the world. Do good when it feels good. But we are not humanists. Church, we're not humanists. We are believers, not in the goodness of humanity, but in the goodness of God. We are believers in the goodness of God who has given us good gifts that are, it's grace to us, and they've been entrusted to us to use for the good of others. So what that means is that our stewardship is divinely appointed. It's divinely appointed. All the gifts that you've been given, all the time, all the talents, all the treasure, all the influence, your job, your house, where you're from, everything has been divinely appointed and given to you. And so your humanitarianism to care for the welfare of others is motivated by your faith in a God that is gracious and has given all of these things to you. You see, our stewardship is divinely appointed humanitarianism. Our stewardship is divinely appointed humanitarianism. And we can easily forget this. We can easily just kind of get roped right into what the rest of society thinks and how the society operates, which is that our gifts and our rewards and our time and our talents and our treasure and our influence, everything, 
is a result of our hard work, and we've produced it, and so we, we give and we help people when we're emotionally led to, when it seems good to us. We forsake what stewardship really is, which is divinely appointed humanitarianism, that God has given you everything you have so that you, can, you may use it for the welfare of others. See, when you want to be, if you want to be a part of a community that is flourishing so that you might flourish and that those around you might flourish, you have to seek to establish a culture of stewardship in your life and pray for it to be established in your church. It's part of what it means to make your house a home. It's to help to establish a culture of stewardship where you see everything that you have as grace to you to be used, not for your own benefit. It doesn't belong to you. but it's for the needs of others. And the place that we start by thinking about this is in our spiritual home. It's where our attention should go first when we think about stewardship. How might you use, God, everything that you've given me for the sake of those in the community that I'm called to love, for the sake of the church that I'm called to love? I'm called to love all of those around, not just a select few. So how might I use everything, God, so that nobody has need, so that everybody can flourish, that we can be of one heart and one mind? See, this is a hard reality to swallow and to live. Maybe it's easy to hear sometimes because it's common talk in the church, but it's really difficult to live out. Because we have to allow God to interrupt our life. Almost all of us, I believe, have a path in mind for our life and our family. We have plans that we've made. 2020 has destroyed most of those for many of us. But we got plans for 2021. We have plans. We have a culture that we have set in our life, a lifestyle that we live within. We have claims that we believe are true and good. Sometimes God's word comes to us and it interrupts us because we're not living in accord to it. And I pray that as you hear this, as you read about the church and its beginnings, which is how we are to be because it's a culture of flourishing, that you'd allow God to interrupt your plans. You'd allow God to interrupt the path that you have set, that you'd Allow God to alter the claims that you have so that he might renew your life and the culture that you've set so that you might experience the joy that it is to be a part of a community that lives like this. You see, when you read about this, you realize that there's a third aspect of an environment for flourishing that is required. You've got to love those around you it's got to be a culture of, of stewardship. And thirdly, there has to be bold living. Where you live bold, you take risks, you step outside your comfort zone, you sacrifice, you live open-handed. We read about here about a man named Barnabas who heard about the needs of his community and realized that he had land that he could sell that could help. So he went and sold the land and brought the proceeds so that the needs of the community might be met. Now, I'm not telling you, 
that God is telling you to sell your property or your real estate. But he may. How does that make you feel? He may. But bold living is not prescriptive, it is receptive. Bold living is not prescriptive, it is receptive. It is not every single one of you that has land or a house or a property, go sell it right now and bring the proceeds. It's not prescriptive, but it's receptive, meaning it requires that you are living open, that you're waiting and willing to receive guidance from the Holy Spirit, that you're discerning the way that God is using all of the gifts that you've been given to help meet the needs of others, that you're willing to live generously, that you're willing to sacrifice for others, that you're willing to receive the needs of those around you as needs that you can be a part of meeting, not just those for someone else. Bold living is not prescriptive. It's receptive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I have to believe that the Holy Spirit convicted Barnabas, told him, hey, you have some land that you don't need. You're not using. Why don't you sell it? And he sold it. And he brought it so that those that were hurting and struggling might have their needs met in the community. So no one was lacking. So everybody could flourish. See, bold living requires that you're, you're willing to jump into the life of joy that Jesus has set for us. The life of joy that Jesus has set for us. One of the things that I love is skydiving. I've been twice. I thought about getting my skydiving license, but then I realized it takes a lot of time. It's expensive. Some of you are going to say, and you're you know, married with two boys. You're right. It's also true. But when I was younger, I was like, I want to, I mean, I want to learn how to skydive. If you haven't been, it's an unbelievable experience. It's a bold step for many, but there's so much joy when you jump out of that plane. I want you to imagine that you arrive at an airstrip, okay? Some of you are like, I would never skydive, but I want you to go along with me. You arrive at the airstrip and you get there and you have to sign all these documents where you sign your life away and you're like, that makes you nervous. You meet the instructor. The instructor tells you kind of how it's going to work. You ask, can I take my shoes off? Can I, can I skydive barefoot? Which I did. I highly recommend that. It's like, it doesn't matter. You got your glasses. Maybe you put on a suit, a little skydiving suit. He says, listen, all you got to do is arch your back when you jump out of the plane and enjoy. Okay, sounds good enough. We're really nervous. So you're ready. The plane's there. You get into the plane. You fly up. You're as you're climbing in altitude, it's getting colder and colder because it's pretty cold up there, 15 to 18,000 feet. They open the door to the side of the plane and you see a couple other people jump out and they just disappear. And now you're getting real nervous. The instructor attaches the, his harness to your back and you waddle up to the side of the airplane door. You curl your toes over the edge of the door and you look out and it is cold and the wind is hitting you and the ground is like really far down now. And you look back at the instructor and you say, I'm not ready, I can't do it, I can't do it. He says, okay. You scoot back, the plane, the plane starts to descend and he says, why, why, didn't, why, why didn't you jump? 
oh, I don't want my stomach to drop. You know, I don't like that on roller coasters. If I go too high on a swing, I don't like when my stomach drops. And this is what, that doesn't happen when you skydive. Well, okay, well, I'm afraid that like when we jump out, we're just going to keep flipping and flipping and flipping. And I don't want, I don't want to go through that. That's terrifying. He says, well, that's not going to happen because we jump out. I, I pull like this little chute that stabilizes us and we're not going to flip at all. Just one flip out of the plane and then we'll stabilize. Okay, well, that makes me feel better, but what about the parachute? I mean, that's the big one. What if the parachute doesn't open? I mean, I'm not ready to die. This is not, you don't have to worry about that. We're going to pull the chute at 5,000 feet, which is five times the amount of distance that you really need to. Gives plenty of time to address any issues if the chute doesn't come out. And even if the chute doesn't come out, there's a CO2 canister hooked up to the emergency parachute that's attached to a certain altitude. And once we hit that altitude, it will eject us and we'll float down no matter what. Now I won't have steering, so we may land a couple counties over. But we'll land safely. It's okay. If a plane lands, you think to yourself, why was I so scared? Let me go jump. I'll, and you say, oh, listen, look, can we go back up? Okay, we'll go back up. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but we're going to go back up. Let's do it. You get up there, 15,000 feet. The door opens again. You're attached. You get to the edge. You curl your toes. You look out. <sighs> you're still not ready. You look at the instructor and you say, I, I can't jump. I can't do it. I know it makes sense. I know it's going to be great. I just can't do it. And he looks at you and he says, too late. Boom. Throws you out of the plane. And now you are mad. As you're flipping, you're mad. This actually happened to my friend, by the way. The instructor said, too late. Threw him out of the plane. But you're mad as you're flipping. But then you start to level out. He pulls that little chute. You stabilize. And you are overwhelmed with the experience. It feels like flying. The joy. Now you actually love the instructor because he forced you out. And you have that experience. You see, the biblical environment for flourishing requires that you jump into something that can be a little scary. Terrifying. You may hear about all the reasons why you shouldn't, but it requires bold living. There is a, a jump that requires courage. But when you jump, or when the instructor, the Holy Spirit, sometimes forces you out, it brings so much joy. John 15, 11 says this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, Jesus' joy, may be in you and your joy may be full. See, joy is a key to flourishing. It is a part of being a part of an environment where people are flourishing there's joy. Did Jesus have joy? Of course. He was full of joy. In fact, he promises to make his joy full in you when you listen to the words spoken. So what was Jesus' life like? Because if his life was an environment of flourishing where there was full of joy, we should glean something from that. Well, Jesus had a community, 12 disciples. He worked even before he went into public ministry, which was still work. He was a carpenter. He worked a job. Jesus spent time reading Scripture and praying and going to public worship in the temple and synagogues. Jesus had time alone. He pulled away. He needed some alone time. 
Jesus loved to have great food with his friends and meet new friends. He went to the wedding and turned water into wine. He loved to travel. He traveled all around Israel. You're like, hey, this is an awesome life. This is like the life I want. I want to work. I want to travel. I want to have great food with my friends. I want to read scripture and pray, and I want to go to worship. Sounds great. I want time alone. I need my alone time. This is great. This is who, what Jesus' life was like. But there's other elements of Jesus' life too. Ones that aren't as highly esteemed. Ones that we have to jump into to experience full joy. To see ourselves be a part of an environment where everybody can flourish, including ourselves. And when you jump into those things, just like when you jump out of the plane and skydiving, it all comes together. So you can't experience the joy of skydiving unless you jump out of the plane. The preparation, flying up in the plane, getting the suit on, that none of that means anything until you actually experience what you were intended to experience. And all of these other aspects, they do not come together for you to experience full joy and be a part of an, a community where people are flourishing including yourself, until you jump into every aspect, until you jump into things like caring for the needy, caring for the poor, being concerned with the needs of others, looking at those that are left out, overlooked. When you seek to live a life of sacrifice, sacrifice of your time and your talent and your treasure. See, these are other aspects of Jesus' life too sacrifice, and caring for the needs of others. You see, Jesus loved you enough. He loved you enough to steward the cross given to him by God the Father for your good. He's in the garden the night when he's going to be betrayed before he's beaten. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that when he's crucified, the Father is going to turn away from him and turn his back on him. He's going to feel forsaken. He says, I don't want to do it. Father, I don't want to drink this cup. But if it is your will, let it be done. Not my will, but yours. And he takes what was not a good gift, the cross. And he sacrifices his life, his comfort. So that you and me might have the great gift of salvation. Because of the cross. Because of his sacrifice. Because of that bold step. He jumped into the cross for you and for me. And it was still all joy. Even in sacrifice. Even in pain. Jesus was willing to sacrifice for you and for me, and see everything that led to that moment, it all came together. Everything had prepared Jesus' life for that moment, and he knew it. That was his mission, to steward the cross for you and for me. Jesus could have backed out. He's a son of God. He could have said, I'm not doing this. When Pontius Pilate, who knew he was innocent, was looking for ways to get him off, Jesus could have opened his mouth and said, yeah, I mean, Here's why I'm innocent. Let me, let me state my case, except for it says that Jesus was silent before his accusers. 
He stewarded the cross for you and for me so that that gift that required sacrifice for him was a good gift for us, gift of salvation. So the question for us, church, is will you be a part of fostering and helping create an environment for flourishing? Which means, will you love those around you? Will you seek to be a good steward of every good gift that's been given to you? Will you live boldly, willing to sacrifice, even when it hurts you for the sake of others, for the welfare of others? You see, when we do this, we love those around us, we're good stewards, and we live boldly, even when it requires sacrifice, we experience joy, great joy. I pray that that's what we would experience. We would see God make in our home here through you, through me, through us together, and through God's grace over our community. Let's pray. God, we are people who struggle with stewarding your gifts given to us for the sake of others. We struggle with loving people around us, especially when they're different from us. We struggle with living boldly because it requires sacrifice. Pray that you would help us see that this is in fact the way that we experience great joy, joy in relationship with you and joy in the community that you've placed us in. Joy with the people around us where we can look around and say, Nobody has need because we care for one another. We're concerned with one another. We love one another. We all recognize that everything we have, whether it's a lot or a little, it's all been given from you. We've been entrusted with it. Would we use our time and our talent and our treasure, our influence, our careers, everything, Would we use it all for your glory and for the welfare of others? Would we be willing to sacrifice, trusting that your joy will be made full in us when we listen to your words, when we follow the example that you have set, and when we rely upon your grace? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.